Hey church, Jason here. Uh, like many of you, I've been watching the news about violence between Israelis and Palestinians. And in spite of the recent ceasefire, I have felt fairly overwhelmed with both anger and sadness. I've been to that part of the world several times and have always been struck by the beauty of its people and the tragedy of its current situation. Uh, one of the most compelling experiences, uh, one of the most convicting experiences I've had in life is to walk through Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. You know, it's, it's one thing to read about the evil of the Holocaust in a book, and it's another thing to be led through its history and artifacts by a Jewish person. And then after walking through such a painful story, then being brought to a high point overlooking the land, and to hear that Jewish guide talk about the modern state of Israel as a response to not just the Holocaust, but a history of anti-Semitic hate and violence that is seemingly as old as the Jewish people themselves, a violence that has escalated around the world and right here in the U.S. recently. I've toured bomb shelters in Starot, a town near Gaza where Israelis live in constant fear of bombardment from rockets that Hamas launches on their homes and schools and playgrounds, and I've wondered how anyone could be so hateful raining down such violence on innocent people. But these trips have exposed me to other stories too, including stories of Palestinians who have their own aspirations for safety and dignity in a land where their own roots run deep. These encounters have been really challenging for me because I've learned that I had blind spots and prejudices that have been shaped by my identity as an American, by growing up in evangelical spaces, by hearing only one predominant narrative in American media, and by not realizing that there are in fact many narratives in that land and among the people who call it home. Uh, these trips have been formative in my own understanding of what it means to follow Jesus in the way of peace for the sake of the world. And one of the bedrock principles I've learned in that process is to listen to people who are suffering, especially when I might have written off their story. And so today, I'd like us to hear a perspective that will be perhaps new for many. And it comes from Daniel Benura. Uh, Daniel is actually a member of our church family here in South Bend, but he's not from South Bend. He's from Palestine, born and raised there, and he's a Palestinian Christian. And he's got a perspective to, sh to share with us that might be different than one that you've heard before. So church, I encourage you to really listen to Daniel. He's passionate and he'll say things in this conversation that might be hard to hear, uh, perhaps because they're in contrast to the narratives that you're familiar with. But that's exactly the kind of listening we're called to do because Jesus calls us to the brave and difficult work of loving our neighbor, all of our neighbors, our Jewish neighbors, our Palestinian neighbors in this conflict, and to understanding the systems and structures that affect our neighbors. And Daniel has... Uh, been born and raised in, a, in that context and has a very sharp perspective on those systems and structures. And he's been really gracious in sharing both his personal perspective with us and uh, an opinion about those structures and systems so that we can grow in our understanding too. And so church, um, as we try to continue to be learners and to follow Jesus in the way of peace, uh, I'm grateful that we have this from Daniel and hope that you will uh, listen in grace and peace. Daniel, welcome. Uh, thanks for being with me today. A lot of us have been seeing some headlines about what's happening um, in the part of the world that you're from. But headlines are one thing and personal stories are another. And uh, so you remember South and City Church, you're Palestinian, you're Christian. Those might be categories that people aren't very familiar with, frankly. Um, so before we get into what's happening right now, could you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you've come from, your family roots, and what you're doing in South Bend? Yes, thanks. Uh, thank you, Jason. I'm happy to be here with you. So I am 
like you said, I am Palestinian. I'm a Christian Palestinian Arab. I speak Arabic. That's my mother tongue. I'm a Christian, and I'll deal with that in a bit. And I'm a Palestinian. My my national identity is a Palestinian. Um, I speak Arabic because that's the lingua franca. That's the language that is spoken in the in, spoken in the Middle East, and I kind of follow that kind of complicated history of the Middle East and what's been happening there. So I was born in Jerusalem, and I'm from Bethlehem. My family is from Bethlehem. I joke and say that I, I look like Jesus because I am from, from, from Bethlehem. <laughs> so in case you see me in the street and you say, oh, this guy looks like Jesus. Yeah, it's, like, yeah. it's because I am from... <laughs> Especially with you healing people as you walk right, along. And exactly, all that. <laughs> right, right. So I am, I am from there and um, kind of grew up, grew up in Bethlehem, um, finished my studies back in Bethlehem, and then I moved to the U.S., um, did my studies in the, at the University of Florida. I have a bachelor's in, in science, in physics, and then had this kind of epiphany, um, and I saw myself more interested in engaging with issues of faith and theology and philosophy and uh, Islam as well. So pivoted from physics, uh, did a master's in theology at London School of Theology in England, and then did a second master's in Islamic studies at uh, the University of Chicago. Uh, moved back to Palestine, to Bethlehem, worked on some small businesses and some kind of work in the local community. And now I'm back in the U.S. and now I'm doing my Ph.D. studies in Quranic studies at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, what's Quranic studies? Yes, great. So that would be another podcast episode. Perhaps. Yeah, fair. Yeah, never ask a PhD student what they're studying because you don't have time to hear the answer. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we love talking about the stuff that we obsess <laughs> about every day. But no, so the Quran is the holy text of Islam. Uh, so I engage, read the text and engage with the history and the redaction of the Quran. Specifically, mm. and I work with my advisor, Gabriel Said Reynolds, on the what we call the biblical subtext of the Quran, mm. which is the... Um, the belief right now, which is kind of very persuasive right now with the evidence that we have from the text itself, that the Quran came about in, a, in an, an environment, uh, what we call a sectarian milieu, a world of um, Christianity and Judaism uh, was were both uh, present and have influenced the formation, the theology, and even the collection of the Quran. Mm. So I'm interested in these questions about uh, history of the text, about redaction of the text, and trying to make sense of this connection between the biblical tradition, the biblical literature, and and, and the Quran, mm. and how the Quran was influenced by uh, the Christian and Jewish traditions that preceded the Islam. Daniel, you, you talk about being Palestinian, and you speak Arabic, that's like mm -hmm. your mother tongue, is mm -hmm. that right? Mm -hmm. um, a, a lot, maybe most Americans, would be surprised then to hear you say that you're Christian, and so then they're wondering like, wait, did you recently convert? because I thought Palestinians were Muslim. Mm -hmm. And so can you unpack that, your, your Christian identity and the roots of that? Right, yeah. So um, the Christian presence in the Middle East um, is uh, authentic, as authentic and as original as Christianity itself, right? So I'm not a convert. Uh, I wasn't a Muslim. My lineage goes back to the Church of Pentecost of Acts 2. Um, so I've been a Christian. My family has been a Christian before you know, the, the pagan ancestors of, you know, like Europeans became Christians. Uh, it's actually my ancestors who shared the gospel with your ancestors and they became Christians, right? Yes. So, you know, Christianity is actually, uh, is from there. It's an Eastern religion. 
Jesus was a Palestinian. I mean, he was a Jewish. He was a Jewish Palestinian, who, a Jew who lived in what what is called a region called Palestine, and and the church has continuously existed there in in the land since then. A lot of a lot has changed throughout history, especially with the Islamic conquest to Palestine in the seventh century. Christians were a minority, and then they they continued to live there. They became a minority by the eleventh, twelfth centuries, and then. By the, early by the early 20th century, 10% uh, of the Palestinian population was Christian. And we're talking about a very diverse and very beautiful kind of uh, church community. And, um, you know, it's the Holy Land. So, like, you have every denomination that uh, is there. The vast majority is Orthodox and Catholic. And then there, I come from an Orthodox background, but also I, uh, I became a Protestant um, and there's, so there is a healthy kind of small minority within the minority that is Protestant, whether Lutheran, Presbyterian, Evangelical. Uh, or whatever Catholic. South and City Church is. Right, right, exactly, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, I mean, it's the, the, the witness of Christ in his land has continued throughout the time. I'm Christian-Palestinian, and that is normal, and that is part of that history of, of that region. And our, our confusion about that is only kind of based on ignorance and essentialization of the East, of the Middle East, and so on and so forth. Um, but yes, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a legacy that is beautiful, and Christians have continuously served and loved their community in, in Palestine and in the region as well. And they continue to be that kind of bridge um, between the East and the West. I speak the language of the Quran, of Islam, but also I believe in the Bible. And I believe in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, what Jews believe in. And I believe in the, you know, the New Testament, what, you know, and I am a Christian like you. And so in, in a Christian, Middle Eastern Christians have, have continuously been that bridge. Uh, and it's unfortunate, it's sad that many Christians don't know that we exist. And even though we are, I think we can, we play and we can play as Christians a huge role in connecting the Muslim world, the Arab world, the East uh, with the Christian world here in the West. Yeah. And by the way, while we're talking about it, um, mm. and this is a bit of a pivot, we just share a little bit of how you find your way to South Bend City Church. Uh, we met at the baseball stadium last year. We were doing mm -hmm. outdoor gatherings. I mean, you're in town, like you said, for grad school, but uh, just give us a little bit on that before we get back to the issue at hand. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So I applied um, to uh, Notre Dame like in 2019. I got accepted to join the PhD program in early 2020. And then in like the summer, I was getting ready to move and uh, a friend recommended that I look into the church, South Bend City Church. And as a Palestinian, and we'll deal with this in, in, the, in the podcast now, part of the main reason for me that I joined South Bend and the main reason uh, that I wanted to be part of the, the church here was the issue of social justice. And I, I was part of so many evangelical communities and churches that were not were disengaged with, from reality and they kept talking about salvation and, and faith and so on and personal kind of salvation and ignored reality and on the ground. And, I, and especially during that time, the protests were happening in the US about George Floyd and systemic racism. And as a Palestinian and as someone who really cares about the gospel, a, a gospel that is, that is concerned about the weak and the poor, I, I wanted to find a church that concerns and deals with these issues and deals with these hard questions. So I just randomly listened to a podcast episode and it's kind of funny that I'm on one right now. That's right, that's right. <laughs> but then you were talking about, you know, the church and how we respond to racism and so on. And also randomly you mentioned Palestine, Israel and, and like you gave a story of you're listening to people there and like thinking about theology and how relevant theology is right now for us. And I'm like, 
well, hey, this is my church. Like, I, <laughs> this is the perfect, it's Christ-centered, concerned for the world, for social justice, for an authentic way to live, to live and to follow Christ. And, and that was kind of it. Like, I didn't even have to look anywhere else. I didn't go any church hopping or shopping. And I just kind of knew this would be my, my home for the next five years in South Bend. Wow. Well, we're honored that uh, you and Shannon are a part of this. Um, so you mentioned that you, you were born in Jerusalem, uh, grew up in Bethlehem. And your family, you, you got family, like that's still home for them. You're here for school and you, you got married uh, out here to an American woman. But um, tell us a little more about um, the place that you call home there in Palestine. It's a, it's a beautiful place. I, it's, it's funny when people ask me, oh, it must, must be special to be from Bethlehem. How does it, what does it feel like to be from Bethlehem? And I'm like, it just, it just you know, feels like you being from South Bend. You know, <laughs> it's, just, it's just home. Um, but it's um, it's a beautiful place to be, and I encourage everyone who's listening who's never been to go and visit um, and see the place. There's a lot of complexity and beauty in that place, and also there's a lot of tragedy and hurt. But there's something so incredible about the society with a very rich history, with a very rich folklore and, and food and, and, and religion and faith um, that is so complex and so beautiful. And, you know, this is a place that has been... Uh, part of what we call the ancient Near East or, or you know, the ancient world um, where actually civilization began. You know, we're talking about Egyptian, uh, the pharaohs, you talk, talk about the Babylonians, all of that, the Phoenicians and so on, all of these kind of civilizations kind of began in that region. So there's a lot of beauty mm -hmm. there. So, you know, my family owns a house that is like 300 years old, wow. which is like older than the U.S. <laughs> yes. is, right? But that's yeah. that's normal. That's yes. like nothing yeah. nothing confusing or shocking or you know, incredible about it. Yeah. Um, the, there is an added kind of layer that adds beauty or kind of um, significance to me when it comes to my understanding of Palestine, which is the issue of the conflict right now between between mm -hmm. the Palestinians and the Israelis. And, um, and this is where I kind of try to reflect on this theologically. Um, th there's a tendency, especially in the West, to pursue comfort and leisure and this kind of avoidance at all costs of any kind of pain and suffering, right? Like we, we have that prosperity, the technology, the comforts, the drive-throughs, the you know, our, our, our phones and so on. But there is this kind of suffering that is, is there because of the reality, because of being a minority, you know, sur surrounded by major majorities, the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis. So adds this layer of, of belonging, of, of an identity that is being uh, challenged or even threatened many times. So, you know, I feel like very closely to Palestine because of kind of the, the open mm. wound I think we have as Palestinians and particularly as Christian Palestinians, as a small minority within that kind of people group there. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about um, what gets loosely called the status quo of, um, and I'll say specifically like life where you grew up. And so th this is like a little snapshot that I think is really kind of hidden from view for a lot of us in the West when we just read headlines or um, maybe we, we've seen footage of, of life in Israel or, or a holy site in Jerusalem, mm. but we don't really have any context for like, life um, as a Palestinian growing up in Bethlehem with regard to um, occupation and walls and um, issues of citizenship and who has the power to determine what happens to Palestinians. Uh, this is a big question. Could you just describe a little bit of like, if you were to try to summarize, <laughs> um, give us a snapshot of what you might call the status quo that you grew up in. Mm. 
Yes, no, that's a great question that, you know, how much time do you have <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. to address this issue? Yeah. And, you know, like books have been, and so many books have been written on this issue. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated kind of history of the last um, 73 years. It is a complicated history, but also I want to emphasize maybe later on we can discuss about the conflict and how complicated is the conflict. But I'll get back to that later, maybe. But, you know, um, for... for for me, when I think about the you know the latest kind of spat right now between Israel and Hamas, and I and I think uh, about the whole kind of constant kind of uh, violence that you see, and how here in the in the U.S. how we perceive that, and you know you hear statements like oh they are always going to be fighting, or this is you know a struggle between Isaac and Ishmael for right. three thousand years. It's intractable and, and it's eternal. Yes. Yeah. But it's not right? right. This is a very recent phenomenon. This this began in the late 19th century with the rise of Zionism, as a response to anti-Semitism in Europe, and then Jewish efforts to come and live in Palestine, uh, or what they call their return uh, to to Palestine and to form their own Jewish state. And then World War II and the Holocaust, um, Palestinian and other Arab national movements that asserted their own kind of national identity. And to form their own kind of like local identity um, after they have got ridden of colonial powers, in, you know, meddling in their affairs like the British and the French and what have you. And then the Holocaust happened, and there was a huge exodus of Jews out of Europe into Palestine. And eventually, in 1948, uh, the Jewish state was established. Israel was established on May 14th of 1948, and that led to the kind of was basically was the watershed moment of the beginning of the of the conflict between the Arab-Israeli conflict or the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. You know, it depends how you want to view the conflict. For the Palestinian, um, it's a 70-year-old it's a history of ethnic cleansing and of colonization of the Palestinian people, of their lands, um, a land that was called Palestine, that was home to, uh, to Palestinian Muslims, to Palestinian Christians, to Palestinian Jews as well, suddenly became Israel. Um, the vast majority of Palestinians today are refugees. Um, many of them were kicked out, were what we call ethnically cleansed from historic Palestine and became refugees. And we still have about six million refugees today, Palestinian refugees who still, most of them live in refugee camps and are not allowed, permitted to go back into their homeland. Um, and that's kind of been the story of military conquest, of, of colonization of the Palestinian land, of the Palestinian identity. Um, and, and continues today in the form of, of apartheid. And, and we can discuss this uh, as well if you want to um, kind of engage with this issue of kind of um, the power dynamics that exist between the Jewish uh, uh, majority that is in power and between also the, the Palestinian and Arab kind of presence in the land. And it's a system of one ethnic pe people group that is in power and is dominating the other people group. And this has been considered by... Palestinian and Israeli and even international human rights organizations as to be a system of apartheid uh, similar to the system that was in South Africa. Uh, so the spat of violence right now, we have to contextualize it. It's not, it's, not, it's not eternal, it's not convoluted or complex. It's actually, for me, it's a very simple system mm. of, of an oppressor and an oppressed, a colonizer and a colonized or, you know, as I said, it is a conflict between the sword and the neck, between a people that are being subdued and suppressed for 70 years and a, another people group that has been doing that to them. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that's how we have to understand what's been happening right now. Um, so we should not be surprised or confused by the violence. Or, and it's not, it's not that it is complicated. It is that we have chosen not to engage with it in a healthy and critical and nuanced way. And, and I think there's a lot of work that has to be done within the church body in the US, in the West, about engaging critically and, and objectively to engage with these issues. So um, let's talk a little bit about um, what's been happening lately. I, again, I think for um, for some people who maybe are like reading the news pretty deeply, that's one thing. I, th I think a lot of people are probably just generally aware that there has been an increase in violence. Um, they're aware that there's been airstrikes and rockets and that there's been strife. They might be aware that there's been mobs and beatings. Uh, I don't know. Um, but could you kind of help us understand what's been going on in the last month? And maybe there's just... Uh, moving through a, a few of the developments that have kind of taken us from what seemed kind of like things were quiet over there and then all of a sudden it's in the headlines. Hmm. Yes, um, and, and that's kind of also, I think, something we have to pay attention to that this becomes news whenever there is Palestinian violence, right? Whenever you, you hear of rockets being uh, launched at Israel, that's when it makes it to the news here. And, and that is not what that's not what just happened. There's there's a pretext to this. There's a context, like and I mentioned this, the context of the violence and the conflict. Um, and before Hamas attacked Israel for the last for the week for the three weeks preceding that, there had been a, an important issue that is happening in Jerusalem, which is forced evictions of Palestinians living in East Jerusalem. Now, according to international law, forced evictions of individuals is a war crime. It's it's uh, it's not permitted. Um, and secondly, and this is a political issue, East Jerusalem is considered occupied. It's a Palestinian land territory that is occupied by the Israeli military. So any change of, to the status quo is unacceptable. Um, it goes against UN resolutions and international law about the, the solution to the conflict. So for when Israel is attempting to evict the Palestinians in this village, in this neighborhood, I mean, of Sheikh, Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem, it's uh, for, the, for the Palestinians, and I mentioned this earlier, it's one, uh, one more example of the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, of, of, uh, of removing Palestinians and replacing them with, with Jewish settlers and so on. Um, and that's kind of the thing. Uh, just a few days ago, four days ago, we, uh, we remembered what we call the Nakba, or the Palestinian catastrophe of 1948, of the eviction of the Palestinians. And for the Palestinians, it's not something that happened 73 years ago and it's over. For us, the Nakba, this ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians uh, has been ongoing. And the whole, the precursor to all of the conflict right now is that the issue of ethnic cleansing and of forced evictions of the Palestinians in, in Jerusalem. Now, the result of that, the threat of evicting the Palestinian families there, led to this beautiful grassroots, nonviolent protest, uh, demonstrations everywhere in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, in Israel, in, by Palestinian Israelis who live in Israel. And there was just a beautiful kind of moment of solidarity between the Palestinians. How did Israel respond? You had uh, Jewish settlers going to the streets, um, shouting death to, the, death to the Arabs, shouting Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, is dead. Kind of these attacks, racist attacks on Palestinian, uh, Palestinian Muslim Palestinians. And then that escalated eventually at Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the holiest site in, in Palestine, the third most important site in all of Islam. And then the Israeli military attacks the Aqsa Mosque, injured 300 worshippers at that holy site. Um, 
and in a way provoked and provoked what's been happening now. Now this is a it's not just civil disobedience or protests or a legal issue about house evictions. It's actually now an attack on on Al-Aqsa Mosque on the holiest site in Palestine for Muslims. That was a calculated um, measure made by Israel by the Prime Minister of Netanyahu. Um, to provoke Hamas. Hamas has been quiet about the demonstrations, has not been involved. This is a nonviolent protest, not really kind of <laughs> the spiel of Hamas. So, but Israel knew what it was doing. It has done this before. It has provoked Hamas before many times. And, and Netanyahu knew that this would happen. Uh, and that led to Hamas saying, if you do not leave Al-Aqsa Mosque, the compound, we're going to launch rockets. They gave them a deadline to Israel. Of course, Israel would never listen to Hamas. So Hamas said, OK, well, we're going to bomb. We're going to bomb Israel. And that kind of led to the context, to the, to the conflict. And that's kind of the context. None right. of what I'm saying here is justification to what Hamas is saying, right? Like we, we need to talk about violence, you know, and let's call let's call time out. Let me just unpack a couple okay. like context notes yeah. there, because that couple of things, I think um, uh, Hamas and Al-Aqsa, like just to give people a couple more handles on that, right? But uh, so let's start there. So if people have seen pictures of Jerusalem, they might imagine that big golden dome that um, they may or may not know is also the Temple Mount. And that's the Dome of the Rock, which is in the same courtyard, right, as Al-Aqsa yeah, Mosque, right next which, yeah. like you said, it's third holy site in Islam, and it commemorates uh, Muhammad's journey from mm -hmm. the land of Saudi Arabia to the Mount, right, where he ascended to heaven briefly mm -hmm. and came back right. down. So point being, um, if, you, if you're looking for a place in the world <laughs> that is tense with uh, right. religious fervor, you've got the Temple Mount, which happens to be the same place. The Temple Mount for um, where Jews had, had their temple, uh, Solomon's Temple was built and Herod's Temple was built. Uh, Christians, of course, um, have a connection to that, the significance of that. And then at the same place, you have uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holiest site in Islam. So just for people, if you're trying to picture it, that's in the old city in Jerusalem, just an incredibly important place for, for all three of these traditions. Mm -hmm. And then Hamas, uh, can you just explain to people who Hamas is and how they're yeah, part of this? That, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's fair. That, I think that's very important. So Hamas is, is um, a militia group, um, an, a militant group that works, that functions in Palestine as one form of protest or resistance to the Israeli, like I said, colonization, ethnic cleansing of Palestine, right? So it was founded in 1988, which is 40 years after Israel was established. And it thinks right now that the Palestinians have been victimized, have been oppressed, have been violently attacked and killed and uh, removed from their land. And as an oppressed people, they have every right to fight Israel through power. Um, and the saying is, power can only be defeated by power, or violence can only be defeated by violence. Now, of course, I disagree with this. This is not the way of the cross. This is not based, this goes against our, my Christian faith. Um, but for an oppressed people, they think any form of resistance is legitimate. And this is for them. It's guaranteed by international law about the oppressed resisting them resisting and fighting against oppression so you know and this kind of deals you know we we can engage with issues of violence can violence be redemptive uh, how do you respond to the powerful and the mighty you know what if someone attacks your house do you can you shoot at that person right like so there is a lot of conversation about just war about violence um but you know i of course there's a huge problem with that and i think it doesn't really help the cause because i think the palestinian cause is a just cause it is it is, it's grounded in international law and human rights and dignity and worth and values like liberty and sovereignty that are very fundamental to any person. 
So the Hamas as a militant religious movement kind of sees itself within that larger context of Palestinian resistance, which is largely nonviolent, but finds itself to be uh, at the forefront against a very belligerent, aggressive, militant state. You know, Israel is the only nuclear power in the Middle East. It's the strongest military in the region. Um, it is like David and Goliath fighting, but for, the, for Hamas and for other militant groups, fighting back is the only legitimate and honorable thing for them to do. Otherwise, they would cower. They would be defeated. Um, so that's the context of, of what Hamas is. Um, however, this is kind of the problem with Hamas is especially in the media in the US, and there's so much that we have to say about this and the bias that is very implicit and very obvious in the, in the media, in the political discourse, in Washington. Um, Hamas is only a small faction of the Palestinian larger resistance movement, right? We, we fight in different ways. Um, for the most part, our resistance is nonviolent and it's a beautiful resistance. But unfortunately, we have to deal with this kind of bias that exists in, in, the, in the world and especially in the West and can engage with this. But my plea and my hope for all of us to, you know, think of this contextually, to understand what Hamas is doing, not in isolation, and also there's a danger of us being very racist towards the Palestinians by focusing on Hamas so much. Because we're saying the Palestinian suffering doesn't matter. What matters is that Hamas is an embodiment of the Palestinian story and they're violent, they're inherently violent, they're out to get the Jews. And there is a bit of kind of this racist attitude that kind of comes into it without any regard or any kind of sympathy or empathy with the suffering, with the continuous trauma and the open wound of the Palestinians for the last 70 years. So we have to un unpack all of this as yeah. we think about these issues. You, you used um, a hard word there, right, when you say racism. And I just want to like, you know, I think help help people with that because I, I hear what you're saying and I think that's the right word to use. But I just kind of want to like observe what you just said, right? That's like, so there's, there's a people group, the Palestinians. Um, and if the move is to kind of judge or characterize like a people group, based on the behavior of like one one element within this much larger tapestry of 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 people and behaviors um racism is probably the right word for that right like mm -hmm. um you know when uh say a country like a western country um with a bunch of white people in it when somebody within that country or some group within that country does something violent or unjust or bad like most of us don't use that to then extrapolate like a judgment on say that whole country or those people. But when it's, when it's another group, especially a marginalized group uh, to do that, to kind of say like, well, Hamas, I kind of, I have a, a view of their behavior and then that becomes my judgment on Palestinian people as a whole. And then mm. Palestinians are suspect. Palestinians are terrorists. Palestinians mm. are these things. That's the right word for it, isn't it? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there's 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 a lot to be done there. So, um, when when you think about racism in the U.S. and you think about the stereotypes that existed in, in in American society and even even preceding America, like when you think about the history of colonization of the Americas and how the Native Americans were conceived as to be savages, to be violent. Uh, I was reading a book the other day, and in the church itself, they would not permit the converted natives to become. They won't allow them to become priests because they don't have a grasp of Latin because they're savage, you know, because they they can't really 
perceive and understand theology well because they come from that savage roots. So, you know, that's, you know, think about racism right now when we think about the black culture, about when we discuss issues like uh, violence in the black community or, uh, you know, single parenthood and all these things. And you hear this frequently, this black culture that is lazy, that is prone to violence, that is uneducated. And all of this is, is these are like stereotypes right. and have been used historically, whether during slavery, Jim Crow laws and so on to perpetuate this uh, power dynamics between the, the powerful and, and then the oppressed, the blacks. Um, so that's kind of where this kind of this essentialization of the other, this reduction of the agency, of the power, of the intellect, of uh, the, even the, uh, the, the feelings and the experiences and the trauma of these, of these people. Um, so yeah, that's, that's part of it. You know, so when you think of Arabs, when you think of Muslims, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And like, like if, you know, like, what is the thing? What, what do you see? Do you see people like on camels? Do you see people like blowing up stuff? If that's what you're seeing, there's something that you have to do, some unlearning we have to do. So there's a lot of that that is happening, that is happening there that re refuses to see the, the other who is violent, who is different, to see him to see her, to see him with value, with worth, to see him, them as complex characters, you know, like in a, in a novel, in a good novel where they have so many things that impact the way they perceive the world. Um, yes. Yeah. We, uh, when we preach, you know, one of our mantras is everyone an icon. Right, exactly. Yeah. When we preach that, we, one of the, we have these kind of litmus tests about othering because othering is one of the ways that we um, fail to live up to that mantra. Right. And some of those questions that we've asked ourselves as a church are things like, well, like you might be othering a person or a group mm. if you don't assume that they have a story, right? You might be othering a person or a group if you don't grant them the same complexity and nuance that you gr that you grant somebody like you, right? Um, and then to overcome some of that is to begin to imagine and learn about the complexity and the stories and the nuances that are part of the people that you would have othered. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of the opportunity that you're giving us today, Daniel, is to do some of that work with how we think about the Palestinian experience. And I just want to call out, I think my hunch is that for some listeners, a lot of what you've said already feels pretty overwhelming, mm -hmm. um, surprising. Yeah. Um, it can be a little bit like uh, stepping um, into a different world when you hear a narrative different than the one that you've mm -hmm. gotten accustomed to about what's happening um, in Israel and Palestine or about what's happening in the news. Um, so I'll just say to our listeners and like our church family, like if you're feeling a little like, whoa, yeah, that's, that's kind of what happens sometimes when you discover that um, there's another, another perspective in some of these experiences, especially when you're a citizen of the richest, most powerful country in the world. It might be surprising to find out that uh, the way that we narrate the order of the world and the empires that run the world that there's another way to understand these things that might be truer, but it can be really disorienting if all you've kind of seen and heard is from the perspective of power mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. and privilege, right? Yeah, and that's a good point. So like, like taking this back to what's happening right now in Gaza, yep. you know, like today, as of yesterday. Sorry, let's back up. Gaza is oh. uh, that little strip right along the Mediterranean mm -hmm. that butts up against Egypt, right? And people may or may not track that the Palestinian territory, or forgive me, I want to make sure I use words that honor how you would mm -hmm. name this, mm -hmm. but uh, Gaza and the West Bank are those two different parts of the land mm -hmm. that are both ostensibly Palestinian controlled, but you can correct mm -hmm. me on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, define control. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> two state solution. There's 
fanciful idea that the land can be split into diff two different countries, Israel and Palestine. And the international consensus right now is that Palestinians could have a state in what is called West, the West Bank, which includes my hometown, Bethlehem, Hebron, East Jerusalem, and other cities, and also a strip on the Mediterranean uh, Sea, the same size as a uh, very small area, uh, I think like 100 kilometers in, in length, Actually, I need to like correct that, but I'm not really certain about the numbers right now. But it's a very That's small right. area, yep. and um, and and that would be the Palestinian state, right? Um, so it's that's kind of the what we what we think about the two state solution. Now, when when it comes to uh, how viable is this? Can 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 how can you have a state that is divided by a different state? There's a conversation to be had about one state solution, a binational federation, or two state solutions. But anyway, this is the kind of the international consensus right now, agreed upon by the Palestinians and the U.S., but of course still rejected by the Israeli military forces. Now, so now Hamas is functioning from that Gaza Strip um, and has been launching uh, rockets at Israel. Israel has been rockets has been launching rockets, bombing all of Gaza. Right now, 227 Palestinians have been killed. Um, 63 of those are children. About 35 of those are women. So about 50% of those who were killed in, uh, in Palestine, right now in Gaza, are children and women. And that's just in this, in, in this recent conflagration of the, the last few weeks? The last two weeks, yeah. right. Yeah. 50% of those who died are women and children. That doesn't mean that the men are all militant or complicit. Um, yeah, we don't want men dying either. If they, right, exactly. Right. And many of but those I, died. You see reports of journalists being killed. You see reports of two doctors have been killed so far. Uh, one of them is like a 66-year-old prominent doctor in the Gaza Strip. Um, also, if some of these were militants, like um, so therefore we just them you know and that's kind of we talked about the icon like do they have worth can they defend themselves can we is there any kind of due process but no and that's gonna and i want to bring this uh, back to the issue of racism that you mentioned it is okay to bomb hamas and militants because they are militants right um but how how racism becomes a problem is when you have all of this suffering when this mass destruction of property of lives uh, the hospitals in, in Gaza are being destroyed. The only COVID um, clinic in Gaza was destroyed. And then when you have the conversation, you want to have a civilized, reasonable, charitable conversation. And you want to point out, hey, kids are dying. And the only response is to shift the conversation, to pivot from that opportunity to be empathetic, to feel suffering, and to stand for the weak, for the dispossessed, for the hurting, and to shift that and to start pointing fingers at Hamas. Even though the rocket that fell killed, uh, for example, a few days ago, a rocket fell and killed 10 individuals, eight children and two women in one family. And when you take that and you ignore it and, go and ignore that horrendous crime, and then pivot to blaming Hamas. That's kind of where the racism is, right? These Palestinians don't have worth, right? They're just, you know, as if they're cattle. They don't, we don't care about them. We don't want to sit in the pain, in the empathy, in, you know, in our in love towards that pain. Um, and what happened, we want to point the finger. So that's kind of where racism is, seems to be implicit. And the more we talk about Hamas, the more we're ignoring, we're ignoring the real tragedy 
of the suffering in Gaza and the illegal blockade of Gaza and the ter terrible conditions that the Gazans are living in because of a long siege and blockade over Gaza. Yeah, thanks for um, unpacking that. Um, a, a lot of people listening might be thinking, wait, I, I thought there's like a, a theological uh, mandate for <laughs> how we think about Israel as a modern nation state. Um, you know, I remember some of the Sunday school classrooms that I grew up in. I didn't really understand what they were saying, but I do remember teachers talking about, you know, the forming of Israel and they had a theory about how that connected to the book of revelation and stuff like that. I don't want to actually like try to go too far in that direction. I just want to call out some people probably heard that kind of stuff. Um, but I would do want to think with you about like, what, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in relationship to what you just described, uh, both for Americans like me and for a Palestinian like you, um, to think a little bit about, well, then what would Jesus call us to in terms of how we think about this and even beyond how we think about it, whether we act on it mm. and whether we do anything. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. yeah, where do you, where do you want to go there? <laughs> yeah. So many things to unpack right now. So the, the fundamental issue right now is what, what does the Bible teach us when it comes to these issues of, of violence and conflict? And I take my, my law, I take my, my teachings from the Sermon of the, on the Mount, right? To be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are thirsty and hungry for righteousness or could be understood to mean justice. Mm -hmm. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for justice. And, and the proclamation of the gospel, um, it's a gospel. It is good news for everyone, particularly those who suffer, those who are in pain. And, and that ministry of, of, of Christ on earth was this beautiful um, incarnation that God himself would transcend into our lives, into our suffering and engage in that suffering and transform that suffering into life, into victory and so on. And, you know, Jesus begins his ministry in Luke 4, where he proclaims that he has come to uh, reveal and give liberty to the oppressed. You know, in Matthew 24, he says, if you do not clothe the naked, if you do not visit those in prison, if you do not feed the hungry, then you have rejected me. Then, then you are the Antichrist. Then you are against Christ himself. Because if you didn't do it to the least of these, you haven't, you haven't done it to me. You were against me. So that's kind of, this doesn't take anything from the spiritual element of salvation. And, and I think the, the gospel is holistic. And this is, we need to understand the holistic mission of God on earth, right? It is, it is our souls, it's our salvation, but it's also our bodies. And, and Christ is redeeming all of it. All of creation has been redeemed. Um, personally, socially, environmentally, politically, all of this stuff is being redeemed through Christ. So that's the kind of the foundation, theological foundation. Even if you go before Christ and go to the prophetic tradition, Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you, O man, is to do justice, to love mercy. You see the prophetic tradition in Isaiah, um, where this transformation of society, of, of swords becoming plowshares, right, of lion and the lamb laying together. And, and you see that, you know, that justice would draw like a tide. And this is going to influence a lot, you know, Dr. King here in the U.S. as well. So there is that very essential kind of grounding theologically and ethically of how we think about issues of justice and issues of violence and issues of peacemaking. So that's kind of the, the foundation that we care for the poor and the suffering. And then we ground that in a theological understanding that pursues justice, that pursues um, of 
the F, uh, the energy and the and the power to put things right as they should be in a in a state of uh, equity and uh, inequality and and justice. So that's that's I think the ethical grounding that we have to function within the the gospel message and the prophetic tradition. Now, what makes this issue particularly a, a messy one is the issue of Zionism uh, and the issue of anti-Semitism. Zionism, which is this theology, Christian Zionism particularly, that sees uh, the land today of Palestine belongs to the Jewish people. God has given them the land. And, and that is, a, is something that we have to discuss as a church body, as a body of Christ, of how we, you know, if we understand the work of Christ, how we understand the Jewish people, what does then what does the land mean today and what does the land function as today so there's a lot of conversation that has to be had and, and i'm happy to talk about it with you as well and there's an issue of anti-semitism right there's that historical animosity towards towards the jewish people by the church and the church has been complicit in the suffering and injustice towards the jewish people um you know and like and and so all of these things have to be dealt, be dealt with and my problem is that when i think when i talk about palestine I can I can hear it now. People listening to me right now, this is what they're thinking about. They're thinking about anti-Semitism, and they're thinking about how they read the scriptures. Uh, so these have to be unpacked, and um, and we can we can deal with them right now. But um, whatever our theology is, whatever we conceive, how we understand history, how we understand uh, the biblical promises, and so on in the, in the in the Old Testament, and how they have been fulfilled in Christ, our theology has to be an ethical theology. It is that mm -hmm. seeks the wellness and the well-being and the uh, the, the, uh, an abundant life for all people, for the Jewish people, for the Palestinian people, and and we should not turn a blind eye ab about the suffering of uh, on the suffering of the Jewish people, or that you know twelve Israelis were killed mm -hmm. in the in the latest attack, um, and these kids and these Israelis have worth and have dignity and carry the icon, mm -hmm. the image of God, just like the Palestinians. So whatever our theology is, mm -hmm. it has to be constructed based on an ethical principle of, of the image of God that gives worth and dignity to the Palestinian child in Gaza, to the Palestinian, to the Jewish Israeli child in Ashkelon or in Israel. Yes. Yeah. Um, and this might be helpful for people to kind of, as a starting point on the whole, uh, well, wait, what about geopolitical events in the Bible and readings of Revelation and stuff like that? Mm -hmm. um, I, just to call out that like, sometimes I feel like I see people trying to do the complicated theological math and, you know, maybe they've heard a preacher who pulled a verse out of Daniel or Revelation mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and tried to correlate it to some modern events. And then they think that leads them to um, pick a side in this fight. Mm -hmm. And the side they think that means they have to pick is Israel because of this, right. um, a certain version of a, of a biblical theology, although my cards on the table. I, I don't know that it's actually very good interpretation. Yeah, no, I but, agree. Okay. Yeah, but just to, so I think a lot of people have seen that and gone through that. Um, that's where they're starting from when they try to think mm -hmm. theologically about this. Mm -hmm. But what's really helpful to me is uh, because sometimes the theological math can be complicated, right? You're like, wait, how, how does it all connect? It's a big, complicated book, the Bible. There's a lot of different opinions and views. Mm -hmm. But what I love is that Jesus gives us this um, clarifying filter when asked how to read the law. Mm -hmm. And he says um, that to love God and to love your neighbor is the fulfillment of the law, which to me, like I can start with like, well, whatever my politics, whatever my theology, whatever my biblical interpretation, if it leads to a lack of love for my neighbor, 
I got my math wrong. I got to go back and reconfigure it, right? Because mm-hmm. like if I if I end up with a worldview or a posture, or if I end up preaching something, or if I end up doing something, or even voting in a way that that hurts my neighbor, mm-hmm. that I probably need to go back and ask whether I got the theology right. Because Jesus seems to be saying, mm-hmm. if you're doing your theology right, it will end up with love for your neighbor, right? And then I think about that um, person who asked Jesus, "Well, who's my neighbor?" Which is this classic like attempt to put a limiting principle on the law, right? To say like, oh, I want to know which categories of persons I'm required to love, which is to me that othering of that, that impulse inside us that wants to divide the human race and say, these are the people I really am expected to love and whose well-being I have to care about, which means there's other people who I'm not expected to love and whose well-being is not my problem. And Jesus um, tells a frustrating story that really f- doesn't satisfy the person asking the question, I think, right? Because Jesus basically just creates a character in the in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the, the, the person in need of love and help in this story is just kind of generic, right? I mean, we actually don't learn a lot about the kind of person I'm called to love. And then Jesus flips the script on the person and, mm-hmm. and um, raises up a Samaritan who would have been a complicated hero for a Jewish audience. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then ask the person, well, who, who, who was a neighbor to the one in need? As if to say, you're asking who should I love? And I'm just asking, will you be the one who loves? Right, mm-hmm. Which, we, I just see Jesus dismantling all these impulses around. Mm-hmm. Well, like, who am I supposed to care about, and whose side are we on? And I think um, if you follow if you follow Jesus's line of thought, there you can leave behind some of the complicated end times theology stuff. You can leave behind some of the twisted interpretations, and you could just ask, who is in need? Who is hurting? Mm-hmm. Where are power structures that have been built that keep people down? And what does it mean to love those people and to wish for their well-being? How, does that track with you? Right. No, for sure. And I think the obsession of many Christians with the with eschatology, with the end times, has has led them to justify violence. And then, you know, like you know, if the Palestinians are fighting Israel, therefore they're standing against God's plans plans for the Jewish people. Who and Jesus is going to return on the. Mount of Olives, therefore the Jews have to be in control, therefore they're opposing God. And I've heard this like, in, like to my face, that I'm standing in God's purposes, against God's purposes in the land. And, and I need to leave so that Jewish people would come, so that Christ would come back. So eschatology, fascination, obsession with prophecy fulfillments has, has been a tool to justify and turn a blind eye on my suffering. And not just my suffering, the suffering of the church, the body of Christ in Palestine, that the church itself, the witness of Jesus in the land for the last 2,000 years is now an obstacle to God. Um, and you see Christians, your brothers and sisters, siding with the oppression and ethnic cleansing and the hurt and the violence at the expense of the Palestinian Christians, at the, at the expense of the, uh, the church in Palestine. And, and this is a very odd thing. Like me as a Palestinian Christian, I'm not suffering from Muslims. Like I, and this is a very unique thing, I think, in the region um, that the main cause of my suffering as a Palestinian Christian is, is, is from, caused by Jewish Israelis and who are given impunity and giving support and funding and money by the church, especially in the U.S., that Christians are given millions of dollars annually to support uh, Israel. I can talk about American politics as well and how many billions of dollars annually are given to the military uh, through our tax dollars. Um, and that's kind of the thing that this kind of this, th- and the, all of this is based, on, a lot of it is based on how we understand eschatology and the end times. And you know, if, if our theology is, if our end times theology is causing us to be 
um, like this, blind to suffering and to even stand against the body of Christ in his land, there's a huge problem with the theology. And we better get rid of it quickly. We better examine ourselves and, and understand that this theology is not just something you read in a book. This theology influences the lives and the dignity of, of the body of Christ and also millions of people living in, in Palestine, Israel. I remember my first trip to the region, I was just overwhelmed. Actually, I have this journal from that trip somewhere. And I wrote over and over again in my journal, theology has consequences. Mm, right. I just right. saw that so painfully clear in a mm. way that I had been naive about before I went to a place in the world where really American Christian theology gets exported and weaponized. And um, I, it was a really uh, profoundly humbling thing to just see that like mm. what might feel like a, like a dorm room conversation, like a, a fun, like theoretical thing to kick around, whether it's eschatology, which by the way, friends, that's kind of a big word for like the end times. Um, mm. Anyway, that these conversations can seem theoretical or like a hobby. And then you go to a place in the world where people are dying because mm. Mm. we're doing bad theology. I think that's really true. Like, people right, are dying because yeah. we're doing bad theology. Right. Yeah. yeah, and then you see. So you mentioned the Good Samaritan, right? That my neighbor is is anyone, right? Who I see at the side of the road. Um, you see, you go to Galatians three. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, right? Male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus. And that chapter is very important in the way we understand prophecies and fulfillment. That they actually the true sons of Abraham are those who are of faith. Not the the seed of Abraham is not an ethnicity. It's actually those who are faith of fa the faith of Abraham, who was not a Jew, but who believed in God, and it was considered as righteousness to him. And therefore, if we belong to Christ, we are uh, sons of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. So there's a shift that is moving us from a very ethnocentric slash racist theology that sees one people is privileged into this beautiful, inclusive theology that's saying anyone could be received, anyone could be son of Abraham, any, and anybody could inherit the land. The meek inherit the land, right, in Matthew 5. And Jesus said, you know, and, and Paul says this again in, in, in Matthew, in, sorry, Paul in Matthew. <laughs> Ephesians 2, we're talking about Christ destroying this wall of enmity that separated Jew from Gentile. There's this beautiful, inclusive gospel that is good news to everyone, good news to you as a white American, good news to me as a Palestinian, Arab, you know, Christian, good news to the Jewish person as well. And that, and, and, and that for me is, is the gospel, right? That is actually good news. So if any part of our theology that is, isn't good news, it's not the gospel. <laughs> mm -hmm. It is actually against the gospel because it's not being good news to, to a lot of people. And, and this, you know, touches on the issue of racism, right? Like in American history and, you know, touches on the issue of, of, um, of Palestine, Israel as well. So we have to, I think the church has to repent um, there's a lot of repenting we always have to do, but we especially have to repent on this continual kind of support of violence. And we've done it continuously, whether it's with sexism, whether with racism in the church. Uh, you know, we, we read the book, The Color of Compromise, um, 
at the church as well. So there's, in, and then Palestine-Israel is one more lesson we still have to learn. We haven't learned the lesson of the Holocaust. You know, the lesson of the Holocaust was that we should not oppress and victimize people based on their ethnicity. This is still happening. We haven't learned the lesson of apartheid South Africa, that you cannot separate people, put them in, in ghettos and in pan system like in South Africa. We're still doing it right now, and the church has not learned the lesson yet. Mm. And, and it's just unfortunate, it's sad that we have such a beautiful tradition. We have a beautiful Christ who shows us the way to live and, and formulate our ethics and theology, but we're still messing up. And the church still today is complicit in, in the suffering of the church in Palestine and also in the suffering of all Palestinian people. So um, Daniel, you've, you've given us the privilege of actually hearing from you as a brother. Um, and I just wanna call out again um, that, that there's real trauma and real emotional labor here. These are mm. people, you, you, you know people who've died even. Mm -hmm. um, this is not mm -hmm. theoretical for you. So you've given us a real gift just by sharing and mm -hmm. by um, using your voice to speak into our church. Mm. Um, I, th I think those of us who are listening then, what we owe then is to not just hear, but to do, right? To, mm -hmm. Now, that being said, like people are gonna be coming from all different places and for some, just listening to this podcast will be a really intense labor uh, to, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. these are new ideas or new perspectives. Um, but can you help if you picture um, just the average person listening and maybe they're like, I want to do something. I, I want to take a step. I want to grow in the direction of um, love for the neighbor and especially uh, justice for the oppressed. Mm. Um, can you, can you kind of point us in a couple directions right, maybe? Right. Yeah, so b before we develop a, a white messiah complex, <laughs> before we... <laughs> that we, never happens. Right, right. Before we try to say, well, let me go and fix it. Yeah. Um, we, first, we need to recognize our complicity in what's happening, right? Um, whether it's our willful ignorance and apathy towards what's happening, whether it's our bad theology, we have to learn and unlearn a lot of things. We have to deconstruct. We have to reread re the text. But also, we're complicit in and the suffering of the Palestinian people and the convoluted struggle between the Palestinians and the Israelis and also contributing, hurting also the Jewish Israelis as well through the unwavering unconditional support of the state of Israel. Every year, $3.7 billion go to Israel as uh, in the form of rockets. Um, so the, the bombs are falling now on Gazans. The 63 kids that were killed were killed by American rockets paid paid for by American tax dollars. So it's not that we are the, you know, the benevolent, loving Americans who are trying to save the world. We're actually complicit in what's happening there. And it's not just Palestine. It's also Yemen, the Yemen, uh, the, what's happening in Yemen. It's also Iraq. It's also Syria, Afghanistan. We, unfortunately, this is a beautiful and great country, but also this country has been guilty of a lot of mistakes and problems so there is something that has to be done it's not that i want to be benevolent and help i have a, a role an active role to play in rectifying and and fixing this problem um so that's kind of the, that's where we have to start to recognize our complicit uh and implicit and apathetic involvement in in this whether it, whether i like it or not i am playing a role in this 
So now, how do we how do we go from there? Do we do not should not wallow in self pity and 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 like you know and being feeling badly or guilty about it? Okay, well, what can we do? How can we rectify this? First, we have to develop a theology that is based on compassion, that is based on a Christ-centered um, approach to to suffering and to violence. That takes violence upon itself, doesn't inflict violence. It takes violence, it embraces violence, and it transforms violence into life. Right. Um, Christ walked towards the cross and we have to walk alongside him and to find in suffering and to find in violence uh, a tool for us to, to transform into, into life and to wholeness. Um, we have to care for the least of these. We have to care for the oppressed. This is the whole incarnation is, is God leaving his throne to be with us unworthy you know, scum. <laughs> and that's the core of the gospel. And that's what makes the gospel so attractive. That's why I'm a Christian, because of the incarnation, because of that unconditional love for the least of these. Um, and then we have to, before we try to solve problems, we have to educate ourselves. We have to understand how our theology, how our biases influence the way we perceive the world. Uh, we need to understand the context of the conflict. And we talked about this frequently to understand the whole legacy of 73 years um, admittingly, like my perspective is a Palestinian perspective. There's also an Israeli perspective of pain, of suffering, of idea of returning and being empowered after being victimized. We need to hold that and honor that as well. But as we do that, let's honor also the Palestinian story of hurt, of trauma, um, and kind of conceive of a new reality um, and work towards that reality. But that has to start with education, with learning, with being quiet for a bit and listening. Amplify Palestinian voices. Listen to the Jewish side of the story. Listen to, you know, uh, uncomfortable truths. And and you, you mentioned the being uncomfortable. Normalize that discomfort, right? Like sit in that discomfort and ask yourself, why am I uncomfortable right now? And then try to say, well, okay, well, this is why. Let me try to fix this. Let me try to work on this. Let me try to work on myself first before I can move forward. Now, when it comes to involvement, um, there's a lot that you can do. You can start by prayer. Pray for for the peace of Jerusalem, right? This is in the text. But then you can do a lot of work. You can try to find creative ways to support the Christian Palestinian community. Um, you can write. You can speak. You can send letters to your representatives. Um, you can, most importantly, perhaps, is to stand alongside those who suffer, whether through your advocacy, whether it's through your finances, whether through coming and living there and like using your talents and your skills. And we say this all the time, come and see. Come to the Holy Land and uh, come to Palestine, Israel. Meet the Palestinian Christians, meet the, the refugees in refugee camps, meet with the Jewish Israeli population as well and get to hear their perspective and then develop um, healthy and God-honoring um, approach and then act upon it. And, yeah, and I yeah. think you need to. Yeah. Um, speaking of, you know, going over there and yeah. hearing and seeing, um, this is just me speaking up for our church and just saying, like, having had that opportunity three or four times now to go over to the land and having uh, been really plunged into different encounters with uh, with. Palestinians with different perspectives among Palestinians and uh, Israeli Jews with different perspectives among themselves too. And uh, I just think like it's, it, again, it's so easy to think that this is just like one side versus another side or that like there's a monolithic Israeli perspective and a monolithic Palestinian perspective. And you've just begun to kind of mm -hmm. demonstrate that that's not really fair, right? That mm -hmm. there's actually a lot of different perspectives on the ground over right, there. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that, I mean, so, so. Yeah, no, yeah, I just, I, I just, um, 
I think that's really helpful to call out because like I've sat with a lot of Israeli Jews in Israel mm. who hate what their government does in terms of policy mm-hmm. around their Palestinian neighbors. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't um, quite as simple as like all the Israelis want one thing, all the Palestinians mm-hmm. want another. Mm-hmm. And I, I find a lot of people that I've been ushered into encounters with on both sides of the wall, literally, who are um, really quite desperate to see something different happen there. Mm-hmm. And where they see that their own well-being is wrapped up with their neighbor's well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when the neighbor is other than them mm-hmm. uh, in terms of race or nationality. Um, so anyway, I, I, I just like, I, I know the last uh, hour or so might have been <laughs> a lot of um, unexpected perspective for people. And um, if I can like put on the pastor hat and just be like, church, this is part of what we do. We we listen and we learn and we humble ourselves and we open ourselves to the possibility that how we see things is not the way they are. And mm. so you've given us a chance to do a little bit of that today and I'm really grateful. Mm. And, um, and church, like we'll, we'll keep doing these things as a community, like you're not on your own. Mm. We're a family and um, as a family, we will, you know, day after day, week after week, year after year, um, figure out how Jesus is calling us to, to enact our love for people and to pursue justice in the world. So. Um, if you're feeling overwhelmed, maybe that's a little bit good because maybe that's humbling, but also like, we're not going to fix anything overnight. We're going to take steps that we can take as we take them. Um, any final word you want to give us, Daniel? No, thank you so much for having me. And I, and I, I appreciate what you just said. And I, and fundamentally our, our job as a, as a body of Christ is to be engaged in the work of reconciliation, right? In the work of Christ and going about that business of redemption, of restoration, of making the person whole. Um, and that is like so fundamental, but so hard for us. And we, we get caught up in so many different things that distract us from, from doing that. So yeah, I mean, this is kind of my, my call to the body of Christ, to the church, whether South Penn City Church or anyone else who's listening is to be that person who's Who's, who's all about that business of healing, of dealing with trauma, of dealing with peacemaking in an active, proactive, constructive way, and really like kind of develop that heart of Jesus that breaks for those who are hurting and, and who imagines with the prophets uh, a new reality of nations putting their swords down and, and cultivating um, a beloved community. Um, that that has to and needs to exist in, in Palestine as well, especially right now as people are dying as we're speaking. So thank you for having me, and, and, I'm, and I'm hopeful that this conversation would lead to mo- many more conversations and to be challenged and to be hard pressed to, yes, to be to be Christ in the world that desperately needs Him. Yeah. Well, thank you again, brother. Mm-hmm.